Welcome to the Happy Menopause Podcast with me, Jackie Lynch, nutritionist and founder of the Well, Well, Well Nutrition Clinic, where I specialise in women's health and the menopause. There are multiple ways that diet and lifestyle can support you through the challenges of midlife. And my latest book, The Happy Menopause, Smart Nutrition to Help You Flourish, is packed with all my best nutritional advice to help you tailor your diet to your menopause symptoms. Join me and my expert guests on a journey through midlife in this podcast and find out how you can have a healthy and happy menopause. Self-care is a non-negotiable for women in midlife because it can make a world of difference to the way we experience the menopause. But many of us aren't very good at self-care, although we're brilliant at looking after other people. Women are hardwired to nurture, and it can be very difficult to know where to draw the line if we think that other people need us. And that's why I've called in the big guns for this episode, with Jess Baker, psychologist and co-author of The Super Helper Syndrome, a survival guide for compassionate people. But first, I'd like to give a quick shout out to my sponsor, Better You, who make it possible for me to produce this podcast. We need optimum levels of vitamin D to absorb the calcium which keeps our bones strong and healthy. And that's why a supplement really is a non-negotiable for women in midlife. Vitamin D also plays a key role in supporting immune function, protecting against infection, and it can influence our mood and mental health too. I'm a big fan of the Better You Vitamin D Oral Sprays, which include products suitable for all the family that are very simple to use and with a delicious peppermint flavour. Discover their full range of vitamin and mineral sprays and their wonderfully calming magnesium products, which come as lotions, bath salts and skin sprays, by visiting betteryou.com forward slash THM, where listeners can get 20% off at checkout using the code THM, subject to terms and conditions. So that's betteryou.com forward slash THM plus the discount code THM, which stands for The Happy Menopause. Nice and easy to remember. And so on to today's episode. I'm delighted to introduce Jess Baker. She's a chartered psychologist and an award-winning coach. And her new book is a fabulously helpful guide to supporting people who want to adopt a healthy helper mindset so that they can meet their own needs as well as supporting those around them. Welcome to the Happy Menopause, Jess. Thank you for inviting me to come on. I'm really excited to be here. Well, I'm thrilled to have you because I think this is a very, very relevant subject of women in midlife. And I'm very interested to hear what you've got to say about it and all the advice you've got for us. But before we drill down into that, let's find out a bit more about you. So Jess, tell us your story. What's your background and how did it lead to where you are now? I'll try and be brief. (laughs) <laughs> but I think the most important things are, and the most obvious things to me anyway, are that I I grew up wanting to help people and a number of different factors um, kind of played to that. So I ended up wanting to be a psychologist, even at the age of 13. Gosh, that's so very I young. Myself, yeah, yeah, quite young. Um, I worked towards that. I worked in the NHS for a few years, realised I was, as they as I have been told many times before, too sensitive. Um, But I certainly was. I took the emotional pain um, from my patients and their families home with me. I worked with patients with dementia. Oh, gosh. um, And personality disorders. 
at that point, you're supporting the family as well as you're supporting the patients um, in your care. I worked in nursing homes. I then retrained as a business psychologist. Ironically, then I worked on the NHS staff survey as an academic. So I was still very much in the NHS, going up and down the country with flip tart pads and running focus groups with NHS staff. Fast forward to the near present day, I run a private coaching business now and I have done for about a decade. And the threads of some of my coaching clients were, they had things in common, um, mostly that they were really high in empathy, really focused on others, helping others, whether they were bringing up you know, a young family, helping their older aging parents, volunteering, doing things at work, wanting to expand their career, wanting all of these things, but at the same time, not looking after their own needs. Yes. And, and there was this thread, this, this theme of they're so nice, they're so lovely, <laughs> but they're not looking after themselves as well as they're looking after others. Yeah. And so I yeah. then d- decided to, well, I had the had the phrase super helper in my mind. Now, mm. I've never used that as a label. I've never told anyone or spoken to anyone about that, you know, my coaching clients. But I did refer to my partner, who is also a psychologist. And I kept saying to him, there is a theme here, and I want to understand it, because I've seen it in all of my previous life, whether it was in the NHS, nursing homes, even in academia, obviously through my coaching clients. Anyway, so I wanted to explore that further and understand what's the psychology behind this. And so together we did quite a lot of research, not just looking at the most recent research in psychology and social sciences, but discussing things together, particularly in lockdown part one. Do you remember back in 2020? Mm. That must have been very helpful to be able to have that exchange and bounce things off someone who was equally well qualified to have the conversation. Absolutely. And I think even better was that he's quite a different person, quite a different personality. So although he's done lots of coaching work himself, he's not, and Rod would say this if he were here, I'm not being rude about him, he's not <laughs> a natural compulsive helper. You know, he's very good at looking after his own needs, very good at having boundaries, um, whereas I now call myself a, a recovering compulsive helper. Mm, um, so to have that balance as well, Jackie, was really useful. So yeah. together we coined the phrase super helper syndrome and... And then the book happened. That's what led to your brilliant new book, The Super Helper Syndrome. And it is a great title. And I recognise that it's not a label that you would apply in a clinical context. But I think it's it's a really great way of summarising a subject or, or an issue or an approach that, that resonates, I think, with a lot of people. You mentioned you're a super helper yourself. Would you call yourself a recovering super helper? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I would. I have experienced all of the adverse impacts we talk about. So exhaustion, resentment, uh, you know, when your your relationships get a little bit out of kilter, they become imbalanced. Mm. And because you're helping so much and because you see yourself as a nice person, you don't really expect recognition in return or thanks, but sometimes that can cause a little bit of resentment in those relationships. Yes, because it becomes imbalanced and you think, well, I wasn't doing it for the thank you, but a thank you would be nice. Exactly. The other two aspects are exploitation and self-criticism, which we we can come back to later. But I think it's only because I've experienced a super helper syndrome itself that I've been able to write the book. You know, I've come through a lot of this and some of my personal story is also in the book as well, I hope in a helpful way. Mm-hmm. And of course, as you say, what's so helpful is because it's a it, you joint authored it, 
Rod can come at it from a different perspective and and give it that balance, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, you've read it and yeah. you'll see that there's, whilst we use my voice and we, we explain to the reader in the first few pages why we do that, it was, I mean, Rod comes with a lot of writing experience. He's a published poet. He's been shortlisted for awards. He's been writing short stories and has written a few novels as well himself. So he brings a lot of the the writer uh, credentials to this to this piece of work too, as well as being what I think an amazing psychologist and coach. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great. Well, what a team! So let's start with the basics. What motivates us to help, and and how would you describe a compulsive helper? A number of things can motivate us to help. We might be high in empathy, and there is some research that suggests that some of us are are more prone to being high in empathy due to our genes. So there's genetic component there. Right. It might be through childhood messages. Um, I don't know about how you were brought up, Jackie, but I was brought up with a very strong sense that helping is a good thing and that in order to be a good person, I should help others. Right. Right. Um, yes. Interesting. Um, yeah. Does that resonate with you at all? or No, I don't think so. But I do. Th- well, not not massively. Not that I wasn't advised to help as such. But I do think, and it's something you cover in the book, that this notion of Girls in particular being told to be a good girl and you're perceived to be a good girl if you're helping mummy and doing things. And there's probably a lot more of that directed towards the girls. Not that boys aren't asked to be a good boy. Of course, I'm sure they very often are. But I do wonder if there's an angle there. And it is, I know, something you cover in the book. Yeah, and there's lots of research to suggest. I mean, you can look at Invisible Women by Caroline Criado-Perez. You can look at Down Girl by Kate Mann. You'll get a really good sense of how our social structure has always promoted the female of the family, being the helper, the servant, the carer, the Mm. nurturer. Um, And, you know, perhaps you could argue less so these days, and we're becoming a lot more aware of that. And we can see the stats from the most recent state of caring report from carersuk.org right and they show that over 80 percent of unpaid carers at the moment are indeed women Um, and we'll know from the nhs figures that a million of the employees are women in the nhs so there's lots of things to suggest that you know women are giving more of the uh yeah the the caring and uh, they're more likely perhaps to become super helpers so Anyone listening to this thinking, oh, am I a super helper? How would you describe what are the sort of symptoms, if you like, of being a compulsive helper? Well, you might find that you're helping in lots of different ways. So you might be helping at work. You might be yeah, bringing up a family or helping your elderly relatives. You might be volunteering in your spare time. You might be taking care of friends. You might be that shoulder or that person everyone Mm. comes to. You might be, some people have said that they are the fixer in the family. Maybe you're doing random acts of kindness. Maybe you're looking for for ways to help. There was one really good example that we use in the books. We did a number of interviews, 50 interviews, and we use a lot of the data in the book where we can. And one example is of a nurse who in her spare time was just parking up at the gym and she spotted somebody who was parked in a disabled bay across the car park. The woman at the car in the disabled bay was struggling with an open door. So the nurse said she ran across and she used, you know, all of the skills that she knows. I had manual handling of things and helping the woman safely out of her car. 
And it was a good four or five minutes of a little bit of a struggle. But, you know, the nurse said she got her there in the end and she, she stood her up. And then the lady said, oh, actually, I was trying to get in. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So you get this sense of I must help everyone. I can see there's a yeah. need over there. Yeah. And you don't have the time to think maybe they don't need my help or what kind of help do they need? And am I the right person to give that help? But you jump in. So that yeah. might be another sign as well if you mm, have mm. superhuman syndrome. Yeah. There's another really good example in the book about the the lady who misses her train because she sees an elderly man struggling with a suitcase that's opened up and looking a bit confused. We call her Julia in the book and we use that in, as an example of, you know, Julia then goes on to miss her miss her train and has to wait a whole hour. But then we ask the reader to think, well, would Julia be a bad person if if there was another person she, you know, she saw with an open suitcase, should she help them as well? And would she be a bad person if she didn't? And what are the consequences of her missing her train? Perhaps she needed to get home, you know, in time for, um, you know, a, a family gathering or a family dinner or, you know. So you're absolutely right. It can be easy to get caught up in this. And I think one of the things about Julia and that train example is that she says, like so many people I've interviewed and so many people I know, oh, but other people would do the same thing. But when I asked her what, what other people doing at the train station, she said, oh, most of them were just, you know, going on, walking on by and just heading to their train. So we don't see it. You know, highly empathic people will, will think that others are, are highly empathic too. and They don't see their behaviour as anything out of the ordinary. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. And so it's 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 I think fascinating the way that so much of this can come from uh the social constructs that we live through in childhood, the expectations that are perhaps put on us. And one of the things you focus on in, in the book is the role of the inner critic in all this. And I think that's a voice that can be very loud for women, but especially in midlife. We do put so much pressure on ourselves. So Tell us a bit about the inner critic and, and what can we do about it? <laughs> One of my old friends, my inner critic. Um, <laughs> I, I name her and there's a little image of her in the book, if you might have seen that. The inner critic is something that I have struggled with a hell of a lot in my life. And it wasn't until about 10, 12 years ago, I really fully started to explore how I could work with it rather than trying to banish it or conquer it, as I'd been told by a number of experts, psychologists, mm. books of that title. And my approach is very much to befriend it, to get to know it, because ultimately the that critical voice is only trying to keep you safe. And it's trying to protect you, because you could argue that the brain is wired to protect you. It's not wired mm. to make mm. you happy. So it reminds you of all the stuff that's gone wrong, all the times you've been humiliated, all the times you've made a mistake or a failure. And so that's why we we can be more susceptible to the inner critic if we're already feeling anxious or tired. So we call it out as one of the adverse impacts of the super helper syndrome, because it kind of works at two levels for compassionate people. At the first level, it will be, I should have helped, or I should have done more for that person, or, oh, I'm not a good person after all, because I don't really have the energy to, to do that or mm -hmm. to help in that way or to give that person all the energy and time they need. And at the second level, the self-criticism will be, I shouldn't feel any of the other adverse impacts. I shouldn't feel exhausted. I shouldn't feel resentful. I shouldn't be exploited. I shouldn't let people exploit my desire to help them. And so the, the inner critic is, 
is an interesting um, entity in that way. And certainly understanding that the inner critic is not true. It's often based on something someone once said to you about you or in front of you. Yes, yes. But the brain and the brain latches onto that as some kind of truth. Like I remember speaking to someone who I coached years ago and she said she was in her 50s and she said, Jess, you know that the silliest thing every time I handwrite something, I have the same thought. And it's my inner critics telling me I haven't got very nice handwriting. We explored it. She told me where it's from. When she was about eight years old in primary school, the teacher said, you've got really messy handwriting. And she held, the teacher held up this example of messy handwriting in front of the class. Do you know what? It wasn't even this woman's handwriting. It was the kid sitting next to her. No. So, yeah, her own brain latched onto that judgment as a kind of truth. Yeah. Oh, that's astonishing. But you can see how it happens. I think we all have those things where we assume that we're not good enough, we're not tall enough, we're not slim enough, we're not pretty enough, we're not clever enough, we're not uh, patient enough, we're not sensible enough, whatever it is, we're we're not enough. And that's really hard. One of the things I, I, I notice a lot in my nutrition clinic is I spend a great deal of time explaining to women that when you're going through the menopause, you've got to be really kind to yourself. Self-care is incredibly important at any stage of life, but particularly then because it's a huge physiological transition that takes it out of you. And unlike puberty, which is also a huge physiological transition, you don't have your mum looking after you and making sure that you eat and you rest and you sleep and you get fresh air and all the things that mums do. So It's very important to take that and do something with it and look after yourself. But there's this blockage and the constant blockage is, well, you know, I can't, I can't do that because they they need me that we have to, I have to do this. Or equally, they'll say to me when they're in tears because they're just so overwhelmed with everything, I shouldn't complain. I'm really very lucky. (laughs) And Whatever stress you're going through, whatever challenges you're going through, they're very individual and very real to you. You can't compare yourself to other people and then start criticizing yourself because, well, at least you're not homeless. Because, yes, of course, at least you're not homeless, but everything, every challenge you're facing is still just as dramatic and difficult for you. And it's really important, I think, to silence that critic and accept that it's okay to look after yourself and and take care and slow down. Mm. And I think one way is to, and I, and I absolutely agree with you that we feel guilt. We feel guilty, mm. like, oh, my problems are minuscule compared to somebody else's mm. in the world. Mm. This negative judgment is not helpful. And instead, I can turn some of that negative energy into positive energy for myself. And I can say, right now, to counter the inner criticism, I can choose to be self compassionate. I can choose to say, do you know what? I'm feeling rubbish right now. And I completely wholeheartedly acknowledge that's how I feel without guilt, without the extra layer of relativity of somebody else feeling worse somewhere in the world. This is how I feel. And I'm acknowledging and I'm honoring how I feel. And it's rubbish. And then we can move forward into self-compassion and we can be kinder to ourselves. It's easier, isn't it, Jackie, once you've acknowledged how you feel is however you feel without wanting to sound like an Instagram post, but it's true. And it can, yes. um, you can, and you can be, validate that. Yeah. Yeah. And you can absolutely. only be compassionate to yourself when you acknowledge that as if you were acknowledging to a friend. 
saying, I can hear how, how terrible you feel, how exhausted you sound, how how self-destructive you 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 know you want to be or right now, but actually what you need instead is love and gentle tenderness and and you would offer that friend a hug or a shoulder to cry on or a listening ear. And we need yeah. to turn that love and compassion that we have for others towards ourselves instead. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now in the book, you focus on four different beliefs that can contribute to becoming a, a super helper. And I advise everyone to go and get the book and have a look at those because I want to focus on one of those in particular, which is the sense I touched on it a minute ago, they couldn't survive without me. And I think so many women, again, particularly in midlife, where they're squeezed from every angle, work, perhaps children, elderly relatives, all these things that can come together, uh, they're putting other people or other things ahead of their own health and well-being. So what's your advice about that? The They couldn't survive without me. So firstly, you said that you really liked that chapter. Tell me a bit more about what you think about that belief, Jackie, if I can ask you a question in return. Well, I suppose that's that's probably me. <laughs> I think you go towards the one that that is most relevant to you. Although I would argue also that I see a lot of that in my clinic. And that's the other reason I, I want to bring it up, because I, I think it's very prevalent. I think there's this sense of, well, you, you know, I'm doing all this stuff and what would happen? What would happen if I wasn't? Oh, my goodness. And that's often something I turn on its head and I say back to my patients, well, isn't that the very argument to make sure that you look after yourself? Because if you're not looking after yourself and you say they can't cope without you, well, what happens when you collapse? What are they going to do? And sometimes I, I get in that way because I think it's very, it's very common for us to think we're indispensable. And of course, we're going to be very important to our loved ones and the people in our lives and, and whatever roles we've taken on. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't look after yourself. Absolutely. And I think it's in that moment, isn't it, of getting caught up, like you say. There's a really good example, actually, in the book of a dentist, where she explained the day before having to go into a hospital to to do her list, which was a list of children who needed urgent dental care. She The day before that, she said she was experiencing a lot of Um, a lot of internal pain a lot of discomfort and feeling feverish but she said to herself do you know what I'll be in hospital tomorrow I'll do my list and then I can pop to A&E you know she experienced all this pain she had a sleepless night she went in and she collapsed the moment she got through the door and she goes through in detail and you'll see that example in the book Mm -hmm. and that is a classic example of they can't survive without me and then she says the moment I woke up in hospital I was in hospital for three months she said recovering I almost killed myself, but I had to go in. I couldn't let go of the the desire to help those patients. And of course, somebody yeah. else could have done it. And that goes to the point about feeling indispensable. Yeah. Other people can do this. And indeed, if someone's coming to you for help, are they dependent on you? Are you actually maintaining that dependence on you as well mm-hmm. by always being the person to say yes? Um, so there are a number of different ways you can free yourself from that they couldn't survive without me belief from the first one is to try to deconstruct it see it for what it is it's actually really painful and harmful belief to hold because on the one hand it sounds like you're convincing yourself like i am indispensable and i'm the special person i'm the only mm-hmm. caregiver that could possibly do this in this way yes and that almost is serving this doesn't sound nice and i know a lot of listeners might think oh that's wrong or how could she say this i have to be honest it's self-serving because it makes you feel special. 
Mm. And it makes you feel like I'm the only person that could do this. And there is something that feeds our sense of self-worth when we believe that we are indispensable. When we are That's special. interesting. And I suppose a lot of that will go back to that little girl who was being praised for being a good girl and a helping girl. And it's all about that self-worth that we carry with us. Yeah. And letting go of that is so important. And understanding that we are more than what we do. We are more than our helping behaviours. You know, our whole value as a human being is worth so much more than whether you're helping that person or not. Yeah. And daring to say no, it's again, it's something that I I chat about um, in my clinic. I know my clinic's all about nutrition. If we don't bring down the stress and bring down the the pressure, the nutrition isn't really going to be able to help. You've got to just sort of take the pressure off at times. And daring to say no is is a tough one, I, I think. I remember I was thinking about this actually when I was reading your book and, and also preparing for the podcast. When I was a late teenager, probably 18 or 19, I remember reading this thing in Cosmopolitan or one of those magazines about women complaining and how to complain and how we were hardwired to use certain language and therefore we weren't very effective complainers because we would say, I'm terribly sorry, but I'm afraid and blah, 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 which immediately distills and and makes less important the strength of whatever's gone on. And I was really interested in that. And I remember a month or so later, my watch broke or, or I bought something I had to take back. I can't quite remember the details. And I I went in and I thought about this and I had to take a deep breath because immediately I wanted to say, I'm terribly sorry, but I'm afraid I have a complaint to make. <laughs> and the complaint got ter- lost behind, behind at, at least two apologies there. And I took a deep breath and I paused and I said, I have a complaint to make. And the man behind the counter said, oh dear. And immediately <laughs> the conversation went beautifully. And I just, I often think about that and it reminded me of that because I think once again, we are often people pleasers, we're sort of worrying about the impact that we might have on others. So this notion of being the compulsive helper and wanting to always say yes is a bit of a challenge. Yeah, absolutely. And you're spot on. I have so many coaching clients who mostly female would use those modal verbs in stories they would um they would add a might just ought to could I if possible you know so asking for permission even when we're the one complaining yeah (laughs) so I've got some tips for you if you like on how to set boundaries just really quickly fire away yes of course protecting your boundaries so we've all haven't really spoken a lot about meeting your own needs but it's really important to identify what your needs are if you've spent a lot of time focusing on others it might be that you've lost a sense of self and your own identity Mm, so identifying mm. what your needs are once you know what they are then you can protect them by using boundaries by asserting them by communicating those needs I have a need to have a Sunday off thank you very much you know yes um and it's going to protect you and prevent you from feeling exhaustion and exploited etc and but sometimes it's not always possible to say no you know there's a whole drive like say no say no but actually mostly in reality all we want to do is gently push back yeah. Um, and yeah. we can protect our boundaries yeah, by being polite and professional or friendly. In the first instance, it might be that we want to say, actually, does the other person know that you feel exploited? Yes. Because as you said earlier, not everyone's that empathetic and they probably haven't got a clue. And you're assuming, well, I, I, I know how they feel. Why don't they know how I feel? And especially if you're not asking for anything in return, they mm. might just think you're happily giving, giving, giving. 
Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. so the first thing, really, if you can have a conversation, you know, say, actually, when you ask me for these things, I had a girlfriend once who would only contact me for, for relationship advice. Years later, she would only ever contact me like once in every three years or something. I'm like, are you? Oh, my God. I pointed this out to her. And she said, well, yeah, but that's what you do. You're a psychologist. Wow. Uh, Wow. Just you're, wow. You're know, paying me. <laughs> <laughs> I charge for this. Gosh. You yeah. wouldn't have done that if you were a lawyer. Oh. No. So it's so interesting how some people just don't see what, things in the way we see it. So we yeah. have to sometimes just gently explain. I think one of the things, sorry to interrupt, but you mentioned it again in the book and I I picked up on this, again, perhaps because of my own professional experience in my former pre-nutritionist life, the notion of demanding bosses loving the compulsive helper (laughs) um, and that cycle. And I think, again, that really speaks to what you're just saying, that sense of, well, if you keep saying yes, why, why would they stop asking you? Absolutely. And a demanding boss or an organization or a business or a charity needs those few people who do continue to say yes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I remember I, I used to have somebody in my team and I learned a lot from this this guy because he was really, really competent. And so I always used to love to give him certain projects and things to work on because I knew how great he was. But he was really good at politely pushing back and saying, I'd love to do this. It sounds really exciting. So which of these other things do you want me to stop doing so I've got time for this? And it was classy and it was a a great lesson to me because I was thinking yeah I was trying to get away with that but no he's pushed back and he's pushed back in the best possible way and it's something I I often think about because it just reminded me that you know yes he's great but he won't continue to be great if I keep putting all this stuff on him. Absolutely I think prioritizing is really key especially in the workplace Mm. um but even in our own personal relationships too, explaining what's really going on and even to say, look, I'd really love to help, but I'm just, I'm too tired or admitting that um, yeah. I have too much going on at the moment. Um, yeah, yeah. And I think hormonally when we get to, so I'm in perimenopausal state at the moment and I, I flip for, between quite rapidly sometimes between saying yes to lots of things to then resenting them a few days later yes. and having to acknowledge that, oh, actually I have to go back to them now and say, I'm really sorry, I can't. It was in a, a um, you know, a momentary um, flip of wanting to help, but actually it's not possible for me to give you what you, re- what you need right now or yeah. support you in the way that I would really like you to. Yeah. So please forgive me. I'd like to, you know, I, can, I have to backtrack on that, but if you still need help in a month's time, then I might have more time then. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's great to hear and actually quite reassuring to hear that you're still working on yourself um, as, as that super helper or that recovering super helper. Now you've touched on this a little bit. There's a whole section in the book again, which I love all about how to become a healthy helper. And obviously I think the boundaries you just mentioned are a key part of that. Is there anything else that you could quickly advise us on that we could be looking at? Deconstruct any of the irrational beliefs you might hold about being a good person, about should all the shoulds that you have in your head of that inner critic. Acknowledge that that's those are the beliefs you hold and try to deconstruct them. Maybe for a moment, try this as an experiment. See stress as enhancing. We have a whole mindset shift in the book where we give you very we give you a lot of reasons to understand how mindset shifts really work. And we give you the science behind that too. But seeing stress as enhancing can actually benefit you. Yeah. Rather than feeling under pressure so much and feeling like a victim. Mm. Because we see it as stimulating. 
Yes. And remember that we always have choices. So you can always push back. If you, mm. if you wholly acknowledge what's going on at the moment and that you are tired or you're taking on too much or you just don't want to for no apparent reason other than you just don't want to, yeah. that's okay too. You never have to have an excuse. It's your human right to, to say no without apology and without excuses. Yeah. Once you've yeah. identified your needs, as we talked about a little earlier, making sure that you're, you're acknowledging your duty of care to yourself as much as you are acknowledging your duty of care to others, yeah. you know, looking after your own needs, protecting your boundaries, asserting your own human rights. And finally, I would say, I mean, there's so much, but find support, you know, as a result of, of being overwhelmed, sometimes we can, sh- we can shrink with fear and anxiety and we have what we know we call um, fight or flight mode. Mm. But there's also another response to stress. Yeah. It's called tend and befriend. So seek help. Talk to someone. If you know all you need is five minutes for someone to listen to you, then ask that friend who normally gives you advice to say, can you just listen for five minutes? I just need to download something. You know, go to people who love and trust you and tell them how you're really feeling because if they do love and trust you, they won't want to see you suffer. Mm. Mm. So I think sometimes we have to be more courageous. We don't have to carry the weight of the world on our own shoulders when we feel like everyone else is relying on us sometimes to call out. And people want to help you know your your loved ones will want to help you they want to know that sometimes you can come across as so strong and so competent they go well you know I wish I could help her but she doesn't need it and just one final point is that because we're talking about helping when helping comes from a place of compassion and not compulsion that's when caring gives us courage that's when it's actually helpful. And in the book, as you know, we list so many benefits to helping. It's, it's a lovely reminder that, that healthy helping can exist. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really positive way to, to come towards the end now. I can't believe it. There's been so much to discuss. So most important of all, where can people find you, Jess, if they want to find out more about you and your work? And where can they get hold of the book? So I'm on social media. My handle is Jess Baker Psych. That's P-S-Y-C-H at the end. Um, And that's on all platforms. You can find more about the book if you Google or search Super Helper Syndrome. Specifically, if you go to my website, jessbaker.co.uk forward slash SHS book club. Um, then you can also join the free book club that we're running alongside the book to help readers understand some of the new you know, it's all new content for everybody. So we're yeah. we're offering the opportunity for people to come and ask us questions. We'll do live Q and A's and masterclasses. Fantastic. Um, yeah, as well. So thank okay. You. Well, I'll be sure to put links to all of those in the show notes, and I know you're going to send me some of Rod's links as well. So everything will be in there for everyone who wants to find out more and engage with one or other or both of you. Thank now, you. finally, and I always ask this at the end. So, what are your top two tips for the midlife super helper? Park the thoughts that you should be helping others and and separate that from your own self-worth. Um, self-approval is a massive theme in the book. And um, I encourage people, this might sound random, but let's do it now, Jackie. Give yourself a plus 10. We, we arbitrarily, especially when we have an inner critic, value our self-worth at maybe, you know, if we were to say maybe... Uh, minus one out of ten, minus one or minus three, you know, I'm really feeling rubbish today. Why don't we arbitrarily rate ourselves highly instead? Okay, so we're going to give ourselves a boost of self-approval and go, yeah, I'm brilliant. I'm amazing. I'm giving myself a plus 10 today. Great. 
The second thing is when you are redefining your helping boundaries, think of three things. Decide who you're going to help, how you are going to help and when you are going to help. And those questions will help you decide, do I really need to help this person right now? Or do I really want to help in this kind of way? Actually, Mm. I could give them less of my time, less of my effort. So those two things to help support you as you move forward, becoming a healthier helper. Uh, and you know, particularly for midlife, I think when it when we do feel under pressure, we're helping so many more people, and we have you know aging parents or aging relatives to look after as well. Thank you so much for those words of wisdom. I think they're going to be very valuable for everyone. And thanks very much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me, Jackie. It's been really lovely to talk to you. So, what do you think? Are you a super helper? If any of this sounds familiar then I urge you to apply the very sensible advice that Jess has shared with us. If you want to find out more, I've posted the links to Jess and Rod's book and all their social media on the podcast page of my website, well-well-well.co.uk. And for more self-care, don't forget to pick up your copy of the Happy Menopause book, which is full of all my best nutrition tips to help you navigate your menopause. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please give it a five-star rating and a short review on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you listen on. I'd be so grateful. And do tell your friends and family about it too. It really does make a huge difference to the visibility of the podcast so that more women can find the show. After all, every woman deserves to have a happy menopause. Thanks so much for listening. Bye for now.